So we're coming back tonight to that highly debated text in Revelation, Revelation 21 through 10. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to there. There's an outline um, in the back if that helps you as well, too. And remember, there are, of course, with this section of Scripture, being that it is a highly debated section, there are different views on what is happening in the text. I laid out those, or I attempted to lay out those in a general sense last time, those competing millennial views, and then I elaborated on the all-millennial view of the passage, which I hope to show is, has been consistent with how it is that we have seen this book now for the previous 19 chapters, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So our plan tonight is to deal with the second section of the passage, the section of this portion of the seventh visionary cycle of, of the book, they are, they are marked somewhat clearly, actually. So notice how verse 1 begins with the word then. And remember we talked about how that's not saying then as in the sense of right after, this happens right after the events of 19. This is just signaling a difference in the vision. So we have then at verse 1, and then the same thing, then in verse 4, and then down in verse 7, we read and when. And those are kind of marking the divisions of this section in 21 through 10. And at each of these junctions, you have a change in perspective of the vision that John is seeing. He, he's speaking again about the, the ch a change in the vision that he is receiving. In 1 through 3, we read about what marked the start of the millennium, the binding of the dragon, that is Satan. And then in 4 through 6, which we'll look at tonight, the scene is, I would argue, in heaven, and it's describing the heavenly perspective of life during the millennium, this age that we are now living in. And remember as well, in the previous six cycles of visions, in the 19 previous chapters, that is, we have seen much about life for believers in the time span in between Jesus' first and second coming, both in heaven and on earth. And we'll call back on some of those things tonight. But what we have here is another recapitulation, just like we had in verses 1 through 3 with those events that were specific to it, talking about the binding of the dragon and the, um, the, the coming then of Jesus. Uh, to usher in the new covenant. And then finally, in 7 through 10, the vision changes back to earth to show us once more what happens at the end of the millennium, the period of time right before the parousia, the second coming of Jesus, his second advent. And so we won't get to that last section tonight, but it's, immediate, but it's in the immediate context. And so we'll read the text all in its context just to try to help keep these things together. And so we'll read from verse 1 to 10 and then ask the Lord for help in prayer. The reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And that, after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, efficient word. Let's ask him to bless our time in, in prayer. God, we do thank you for your word, for giving these visions to John, for your sovereign hand in preserving it all the way now, 2,000 years later, so that we can have an accurate representation of what it is that you want us to know. We know that couldn't have happened by just mere coincidence or by the strength of man. We know that as you're working, Lord, and so help us to understand the seriousness of your word and give us understanding. Holy Spirit, we pray. Let this time be profitable. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So I, I want to make an observational point right up front, right here in the very beginning, one that I think everyone can agree upon with this text regardless of whatever millennial conviction it is that you may hold. And that is that verses 4 through 6 are not intended to give us a detailed description of what life during the thousand years is like, what life in the millennium is like. And so regardless, if you think that verses 1 through 3, the events of it, are future, and that 4 through 6 then are even more future, then we should admit that these verses aren't giving us a very detailed explanation of this, you know, so-called millennium. I acknowledge that myself even. Remember, those who are all millennial believe that 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3, are describing an event that took place in the past, uh, an event that took place before John's apocalypse was even written, and the events of 4 through 6 are describing then this time that we now live in and have been living in for roughly 2,000 years. But I'm acknowledging as well that it's not a very detailed and descriptive section of Scripture explaining this life of this period of time that we are now living in. Uh, it's, not, it's not doing that. But what we do have in it is a, is a wonderful um, theological encouragement that is being given to John and the church. Things that we need to know and be reminded of in light of what was established in verses 1 through 3. Things that the church who first received this letter, those seven churches that were this letter circularly went through, all needed to hear and know. So briefly, let's just remember um, what verses 1 through 3 told us. And that is, again, that the Satan is now bound. That in bringing us the new covenant... Christ Jesus in his mediatorial work, which consisted of the humiliation of the Son of God, that is, that the eternally begotten Son was born of a virgin, that the Word, the eternal Logos, was incarnated, John 1.4, and then how he, being the Christ, the promised Messiah, the last Adam, was our prophet, priest, and king. And he did what was necessary to redeem the elect and to bring to pass all the promises of the covenant of grace to save his people who were among every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that all came to a head in what we would call the, the passion of the Messiah, his suffering and his dying of, as a substitute on the cross for all who would believe, for all who were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And then followed by his subsequent re resurrection, and then his exaltation, his ascension to glory, where his session as reigning king and intercessor is held out until he returns to consummate his kingdom. That's his 
exaltation. That's part of his work of exaltation, not his work of humiliation. So in these two general overarching categories, what we call his humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, we acknowledge that Satan was bound. A few texts that speak of this specifically. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Some of these we looked at last time. Uh, but look at, notice Luke 10, 17 through 20, and what we read there. Uh, the disciples had been sent out to uh, proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was coming near. And so the, the, they were sent out in two by two, and then they returned to Jesus and to give him a report. And verse 17 says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, Jesus, that is, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus is saying he saw Satan descend from heaven. He's explaining in, in that sense, that's a way of him ex, ex, being cast down from heaven, falling like lightning from heaven. He's explaining what it means for Satan to be bound. He's lost this access into heaven. He's down here on the earth and Jesus has, has power over him. Matthew 12, we looked at this last time, 28 to 29. Um, Jesus is talking to some people who are accusing him of doing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, which is a name that was that the Jews had just assimilated. It was a pagan name of a pagan god, but the name that the Jews had assimilated into just referred to as Satan himself. And so he says in, in verse 28 of chapter 12, he says, But if I by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man that he indeed may plunder his house? The point being, again, that Jesus has bound Satan, that he is prevented now, he is limited in some way because of the ministry of Jesus. What I would call, you know, again, his mediatorial work, his work of humility, that we describe in his work of humiliation and exaltation. Colossians. 2, 14 through 15, speaking of Christ's work and his saving of his people. There we read, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then notice verse 15. He, dis he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, that's referring here to this binding of Satan. This limiting of Satan's power, his influence, because of the specific work of Christ. Earlier, in Colossians 1, and this I, I think is extremely helpful actually, Colossians 1, uh, there we read in light of what Jesus said um, post-resurrection in the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission, Jesus go therefore out into all the world to make disciples and here in Colossians 1, the, the word has gone out into Colossae, a Gentile uh, area. And in, in verse 1, 6, the, he's speaking here to the Apostle Paul, that is, is speaking to the saints who live there. And he's telling them why he thanks God for them, forgives three reasons, their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love for the saints, and their hope that it's stored up in heaven. But then he comes on to mention in verse 6 this interesting statement. 
about the gospel, how it's come to them initially. But then in verse 6, he notes that, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, this is what it means for Satan to be bound here now in the millennium, that the gospel is going out into the world. And this is somewhat difficult for us to think because of our presuppositions. But it doesn't mean that Satan is without power in this age. He, of course, is still described as a lion, roaring, seeking to devour. He's the prince of the power of the air. Revelation 12 describes him as having a role to persecute the church. And we learn that he also enlists the beast, the false prophet, and the great prostitute named Babylon towards those ends. But with the work of Christ... In the establishing and the revealing of the new covenant, Satan was bound. Before, before this time of Christ coming to do his work, the nations were in dark concerning the gospel. Satan was able to deceive the nations, as we read in 23, right? If he's prevented from being able to deceive them, that must mean, therefore, that he was able to deceive them before that. In other words, I think of Colossians 1.6. Again, the gospel was prevented from going out into the whole world and bearing fruit. But that's exactly what happened after the, after the resurrection. If there was elect numbered among the nations who were not in the nation of Israel, they had to come to Israel, Israel and proselytize, that is, become Hebrew and follow all the faith that's revealed in the Old Covenant. But now, with Satan bound because of the work of Christ, the gospel is going out into the world, it is bearing fruit. And the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace revealed, is offered to all that people may repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And we have the great joy and confidence, of course, of knowing that the elect will respond in time. And Satan is bound so that all of the elect scattered throughout the age and the world will come to Christ during this thousand years. And then this millennium and then Satan will be released, verse 7. And Christ Jesus will consummate his kingdom by coming again in judgment of his enemies and vindication of his people. So, so then, this is happening. This, this act of the gospel going out. Satan is already bound. This is happening already at the time that John is receiving these visions. The gospel is going out. Satan is bound. And of course, it is happening today as well. And so that brings us to the description of this age that we're now living in, in verses 4 through 6. And the first question we have is the same that we approached verses 1 through 3 with. That is, when will the events described here in Revelation 24 through 6 happen in relation to the second coming of Christ? And so let's just simply read this little section, and then we'll make a couple observations. In verse 4, John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, here we have this passage that describes the rule and reign of Christ with his people. Uh, all of the millennial views agree about that, by the way. And in the vision, right on the very beginning, right out the start, we notice that there are these thrones in this vision. Christ is described as reigning and his people are seen with him, ruling and reigning also. 
they're seated upon these thrones. And we're told that some of them are martyrs, that is, you know, those who have died for the faith, those who have died for the testimony of Jesus, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God we read. And then another group, but of course that first group of martyrs would be included here too, are those who had been faithful to Christ to the end, and we read those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And you know, again, in previous sermons we've dealt with this before, but that's not speaking of a literal mark, just like we would think that the, the seal or the mark of God that is on the foreheads of the 144,000 and those that were prevented from harm during, um, I believe it was one of the, the bowl uh, judgments, that they didn't have a literal mark as well, too. We'll have some time to talk about that maybe after the sermon tonight. But notice what it says about these people here who, who are li- ruling and reigning with Christ. Verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ. And so there's, there's no reason to, at all to limit this group only to a particular kind or class of Christian, only martyrs, for example. And the translation to the ESV makes that clear, at least, that, that this privilege of living and reigning with Christ and being priests of God and of Christ is for everyone who bears the name of Christ when they die in this millennial age. Not just those who have been martyred, but those who have been martyred and everyone else as well. Indeed, all who are faithful to Christ unto death, whether it's a natural death or martyrdom, are here seen ruling and reigning with Jesus. Ruling and reigning in what we would call the intermediate state. And just hold on to that for a little while. We'll talk about that soon. Because here, the angle that I want to pursue, or really in light of how we looked at the first three verses, is the question that I'm wanting to think of is, when will this happen? When does this happen? When will Christ and his people rule and reign as described here in Revelation 24 through 6? And so think of in the context of the three views that we mentioned last time. Will it be in the future? After the return of Christ, as the premillennialist says, will it be in the future golden age, as the old Puritan type of postmillennialism says, or do Christ and his people rule and reign now in heaven, as the all millennials say in the modern post-mill view says? And remember, properly speaking, all millennialism is a post-millennial view. Christ returns after the millennium is over, in other words. So two important observations about this text will help us to get to the answer here. The first thing to consider is where is this vision taking place? Does this vision that John is receiving in 4 and 6, this thing that he's seeing, does it describe something that will happen on earth or something that, will, that is happening in heaven? And we have grown accustomed to the book of Revelation shifting in focus from earth to heaven and back again, haven't we? Sometimes the book describes how things will be on earth for the people of God. Sometimes the book describes then how things will be in heaven. Even now, while the people of God live upon the earth in this present evil age. Uh, We're on earth now, obviously, right? But where is Christ seated? Uh, Bodily, where is he? He's in heaven. We can't go and see the body of Jesus right now because our Lord is ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. The God-man is in heaven preparing a place for us, right? So we're on earth now, but where are those Christ followers who have died physically? Where do they go? Their souls, their souls are in heaven. That's where. People, when they die a physical death, while united to Christ through faith, 
go to heaven when they die. And that's not controversial. Again, the question for us here, though, is, is this view that we're seeing in 4 through 6 describing a view of the earth, or is it heaven? You remember, perhaps, what John saw when the fifth seal was opened back in Revelation 6. So just a few chapters to the left. Revelation 6, the fifth seal is in verse 9 through 10. There it says, when he, meaning Christ, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Martyrs, right? People who had been slain for the word of God, a testimony of the word of God. The group described here is the same group that's described in chapter 20. And so then it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are crying out like the psalmist does in Psalm 43.1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. And so what are, or where are these people we read of in Revelation 6 who are crying out for justice, who are crying out for vindication? Well, they are in heaven situated under the heavenly altar, that is, protected, and that is near God. And they were heard crying out to God for justice on the earth. O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But then in verse 12 of chapter 6, keep reading, the sixth seal is opened, and there's an earthquake. It's back on earth. I don't think there are any earthquakes um, like that described here in those preceding verses uh, in heaven. So the vision switches from a heavenly perspective here then to an earthly perspective. And the scene does shift over and over again in the book of Revelation from heaven to earth and back again. Where is the scene of Revelation 24 through 6 situated? Well, 1 through 3, I think we're on the earth. Speaking of where Satan is bound, what's happened with that? But what about 4 through 6? Is it a heavenly scene or an earthly scene? And I think the answer to that is that this vision is, is situated in heaven. The rain that is described here is a heavenly and spiritual rain, not an earthly and physical one. To put it another way, John did not see in this, in this vision believers in their resurrection bodies sitting on physical thrones situated on planet earth. Instead, he saw the souls of those who had, been, who had, who had died physical deaths and now were in the presence of Christ spiritually. And these saints, these souls, they do rule and reign with him in heaven now, just like we read in Revelation chapter 6. It's a, another recapitulation. At the beginning of verse 4, we read, Then I saw thrones. And it should be noted that the word thronos, the thrones in English, appears 47 times in the book of Revelation. In almost every instance, so 47 times is a significant amount, in almost every instance, the thrones or thrones are situated in heaven and not upon the earth. Now read again Revelation 4 and 5 in your own time to see this. Those chapters focus upon the throne of God that is in heaven now. Also, the, the book of Revelation makes frequent mention of 24 thrones with the 24 elders that sit upon it. And what are those thrones except in heaven and before the throne of God as well too? They're representative of all of the people of God. We talked about that before. And so I searched... And I was only able to find four exceptions to the rule 
where a throne is set to be on earth in the book of Revelation, uh, and on, on earth rather than in heaven. And three of these four references to an earthly throne refer not to the throne of God or to the thrones of his people, but to the throne of Satan. And that makes sense with what we have seen in this book, how the earthly has been contrasted with the heavenly. For example, Revelation 2.13, to the church in Pergamum, Christ said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold my name fast, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Uh, there's a couple other um, instances that you can look up later. They're on the outline. The fourth exception to the rule comes at the very end of the book. Revelation and its final chapters is describing the new heavens and the new earth and the ushering of them in. And at that point, we read that the throne is in the midst of us when heaven and earth essentially become one. So there's a throne mentioned in the new heavens and the new earth, not simply heaven or earth, but the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Revelation 22.3. So putting it all together, the first four words of verse 4 are, Then I saw thrones, gives us a strong reason to accept the all-millennial position. It, it sets us in that direction. For the book of Revelation often speaks of thrones that are in heaven now and looks forward to the day when the throne of God will be on earth. Contrary to the premillennial position, of course, which says that, that this millennial period is here on the earth. So we read that uh, the throne of God comes down to the earth in chapter 22, and that certainly hasn't happened yet. That would be the new heavens and new earth. That is the final state. It's likely, therefore, that John is being provided here with another perspective on what is going on in heaven, even now in the heavenly throne room of God. Even right now, while we are you know, here and, and in Antioch at First Family Church, he's describing what is happening in glory for those saints who have already uh, experienced death. He's seeing this, and he's understanding more fully now that Satan is bound in this age. And, it's, and the reason for it is to give him and us hope. Look what he's saying again. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this resurrection. They are priests of God and priests of Christ. I mean, isn't that great, friends? Whatever may happen here, whatever Satan may do, when these bodies die, those who are trusting in Christ will rule and reign with him until the millennium is over. What a joy. This is, this is given to encourage us. Furthermore, notice that in later in verse 4, John also says, or he says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had, not, who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The point here is that John saw souls. Now, it is true that sometimes a soul can refer to a person, but that doesn't seem to be the context here because it's, it's seen that they're beheaded. Are, are these you know, headless bodies that are alive here? No, this is speaking of that aspect of the human nature that is immaterial. The, their souls came to life, and they're here meaning that they are now in glory with Christ. And these are not believers in their resurrection bodies. Again, this is, friends, this is what we call the intermediate state. That is, the state of existence for believers when they die here upon the earth. You know, we know when we die, our bodies go to the ground. But what about our soul, our, our, our spirit? Same, same difference. 
that's what the intermediate state is describing, the domain of the disembodied souls of believers. Think of Luke's second volume, that is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Stephen, the, the deacon, is stoned for his testimony of Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. This is chapter 7. And as he is just you know, berated with stones, Stephen, he, his, his final breath, his, I'm sure, you know, from a human perspective, the lights are going out, but he sees a great light up, up in the sky. And see, he exclaims at that point, verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And this mirrors the words of Jesus himself at his crucifixion prior to his resurrection, where he was there on the cross, Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or think of the apostle. In Philippians 1, 20 through 24, um, I think a well-known section really of Philippians. There's the Apostle Paul is, is speaking of his desire to, and conflicting desire, to minister to the saints in Philippi and, and everywhere else, as well as to be with the Lord. And so in verse 20, we read, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So see how he emphasizes being in the flesh, his body here on the earth. And if he was to die to be with Christ, well, he wouldn't have that any longer. Not forever, of course, for a time, for the remainder of the millennium, as we believe that we'll have new bodies after the second coming, as many texts in the Bible instruct us. But here in Revelation 20, these people are described as souls. This is the intermediate state. The scene here in Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, is heavenly, not earthly. This is not about people with their bodies after Christ kind of quasi comes back to then reign on the earth for a thousand years. This is Christ already presently reigning at the time when John is writing this. And believers who have died in Christ are already presently there with him. And that... that Number has only expanded uh, enormously since when, when this was written. This is describing a reign that is spiritual and not physical. The scene corresponds perfectly to the one that we just read in 6, 9 through 10. So remember, we just read it, but again, it's where John said, he, where he said, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge the blood on those who dwell on the earth. When is that going to happen? Well, that'll be described in Revelation 27 through 10. That's when, this, when Satan is released and Christ comes to consummate the kingdom and to punish those when he vindicates the name of all of those who have died uh, for the testimony of the Lord. So I would hope, friends, if you're premillennial, that you would at least, these things would at least give you a pause. Uh, Revelation 24 through 6 is speaking of something that if we consider um, not just the immediate context, but the whole of the book of Revelation and the whole of really, you know, the whole Bible from Genesis and on. 
It's speaking of a heavenly spiritual reign of saints during this time, not a future earthly reign. It's true, of course, that, saint, that Christ is reigning over the earth right now, and his, in his providence he has purpose for all of the wickedness and the evil that takes place in this age. And even now, Christians who are on the earth, Christians who still have bodies like us here, uh, being united to Christ, are properly said to be reigning with Christ too. But certainly, in the immediate state then, that reigning continues and it's even better. It's totally free from sin. And that's what we have being described here in 4 through 6. So secondly, second thing we want to think of, notice that it is the first death which coincides with the first resurrection. That marks, and that marks the beginning of the Christian's reign with Christ as described here in this passage. So, so what is this first death and what is this first resurrection that is mentioned here? At the end of verse 4, we read that those who died in Christ came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5 says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And this is the first resurrection. In verse 6, we see blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Years. So again, we're trying to think of how do these verses line up with the second coming of Jesus. And, and he's giving us clues here by speaking of a first death and a first resurrection, which also implies then a second death. And, and well, the second death is mentioned, but a second resurrection is implied. A careful consideration of the passage reveals that there is a, that there is a first death and there is a second death. Also, there is a first resurrection, and there is a second resurrection. And two of these things will be experienced by all humans, unless you're Enoch or Elijah, or you're living at the time when Christ returns. Or, and then one will be experienced by those who are in Christ, and the other will be experienced only by those not in Christ. And so on the outline, I tried to put it in a little chiliastic structure that kind of shows that. I don't know if it's I mean, maybe it is intentional, but it seems like I, I noticed that in looking at this. And so the first death, what we see, is a physical death. All who are human experience this, unless, of course, you're Enoch, Elijah, or you're a Christian living when Christ returns. Those in Christ and those not in Christ experience physical death. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. What is taught here in this passage is that when the one who has faith in Christ dies physically really, he lives. Death is the door to seeing Christ's face, to being with him in glory. The believer who dies, as the text says, comes to life and reigns with Christ for a thousand years. And that's called the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So the first death is a physical death experienced by all or, or basically all. And the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection experienced by those with faith in Christ. Notice he doesn't really mention here what happens to those who die and aren't united to Christ. That's not the concern at this point. We've talked about that before. We'll get to it again. To die in Christ really is to live with him. When the body dies, the soul of the Christian goes to be with the Lord and to rule and reign with him in the heavenly places. So look ahead to verse 11 here in chapter 20. And the following, where there John writes, we'll read to 14. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, were in it death and Hades, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There is the second death described the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire so here's a here's a sobering thought those not in christ will die not once but twice and the second death will be far more severe than the first one the second resurrection though not called by that name in this passage is implied and it is a physical resurrection that both the one in Christ and the one not in Christ will experience. Paul speaks of the bodily resurrection of the Christian in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Speaking of a physical resurrection. Here in Revelation 20, 40 through 6, the physical resurrection of the wicked is what's in view when we read the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's verse 5, until the millennium was over. This is the same focus in Revelation 20, 11 and following, which we just read a moment ago. And we'll talk about that in detail soon enough. The passage here in Revelation 25 through 6, I, I, sympathetic, I get it's complex because of all these firsts and seconds and the way that they're mentioning them. But what we have is a first death and a first resurrection, and both of those belong to this present evil age. Think of it like this, perhaps. Both happen this side of Christ's return. People die physically now. That's the first death. And those with faith in Christ, having died the first death, are also raised with him to new life, to live now with their souls being present with him in glory. That's the first resurrection. That's happening on, on this time that we are now living in, on this side of Christ's coming, second coming. But the second resurrection, the second death, belong to what happens after the millennium. They will happen after Christ returns. When Christ returns, the dead are to be raised, given physical bodies, and, though, and, and also physical bodies will be given to those who are trusting in Christ. Those in Christ will go on to glory, to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. Those not in Christ, to eternal damnation. And that's the second death. And only those who are not united to Christ experience the second death. And this is how Revelation speaks elsewhere, mind you. This is how the, this is how the designation first is used in this section of the book. It's, referred, it's used to refer to that which belongs to the current order of things. This present evil age, which is happening now before the return of Christ. Revelation 21.1, so just the next chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In this passage, the things that are designated as the first belong to this age. The things designated as new belong to the time after Jesus comes again. And so, so when do Christians experience the first resurrection and begin to reign with Christ as this passage 4 through 6 describes? Is it off in the future sometime? Is it after the return of Christ? Only after some secret 
rapture and then seven years of intense tribulation. That's not what this says. It says that it happens when they die the first death. It's when they pass from this world. It's when their bodies are laid in the grave or whatever. And then when the the soul or spirit is separated from the body, their souls are raised to the Savior to rule and reign with them now for the thousand-year period. Remember, that is what is promised to Christians at Laodicea back in Revelation 3.21. Christ said to them, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is also what was promised to the Christians in Smyrna. To them, Christ said, and this is 2, 10 through 11, he said, Do not fear what, is going, what you're about to suffer. And behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's not for them. What was promised to these Christians at the beginning is now shown to them at the end of the letter. What then should they do? I remember I said last time, those initial churches who, and I said earlier as well, those initial churches who received this letter, they need to know these things here in the later chapters. It's not as if that the first three chapters were all that was significant to those seven churches listed in chapters two and three. The whole of the book was written to them because it's all pertinent to the lives that they are living there in in their time where they're living. And it's also pertinent to us as well too. And the reason why is because Christ wants his people to persevere. They should live without fear. They should overcome and conquer just as Christ has commanded them. Why? Because even if when they die here and now in this age, what will happen to them? They will go to be with the Lord, to live and reign with him as priests unto God and priests unto Christ. For to die is to live, and to live is to live is to is Christ forevermore. So, some conclusion and application, friends. I know that it's true that we don't often like to think of death. Many of you guys in here are young. I mean, why would you think of dying? You're not even sixteen yet. Uh, it's uncomfortable. In a way, it's not natural. Uh, Death crept into creation through sin. And we just talked to a young girl out in front of the clinic last week even who said that she never thinks of of the reality that she will die. She just tries to, to live now. But the Bible doesn't instruct us to do that. If we read it and we believe it, well, then we must think about death. And it's not morbid to do so. It's smart. It's foolish to not consider death. And so there are two things that we should know here. And these will be brief. Number one, if you're in Christ, do not fear death, neither the first nor the second. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, when you think about death, you don't need to fear it, neither the first death or the second death. Secondly, though, if you are not in Christ, well, then fear death. The first death, but especially the second death. 
Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You know what I love and what I'm excited to talk about in in verses 11 on is how when it speaks of the books being open and people will be judged according to what they've done. I can't wait to talk about the, the reality of books being open. And when the Lord sees Paul Abeda, or he sees Steve Kessner, he sees what Christ has done and Christ works. Christ in our place for us. But for those who are not in Christ, that judgment is a terrible thing. And so friends, I would ask you are, you, are you in Christ Jesus? Remember, you're not in Christ Jesus. That is saved. Because you're born into a Christian family that goes to church every week or twice a week or three times a week. No, you must be born into Christ. And so the question before you is, is have you repented and believed in Christ? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living because Christ lived for you and died for you? And now you know why it is that you were created to enjoy and glorify God forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this explanation that you give us here in the text and and the great hope that it is to know that for those who are trusting Christ, that no matter when it is our time appointed to die, that when that happens, though we may be timid about it now and obviously not want it, but we know that when it happens... Because of our union with you, we will be immediately transported up to be with you in heaven and glory there around your throne. And what a glorious experience that may be, Lord. We do pray that if there are those, in, those here who are not trusting in Christ, uh, who, are, who have not been born to him through the work of your spirit, that you would soften their heart, that you would cause them to seriously consider these things, hey, Lord, and to take account of what it is they believe. And we pray that you would grant salvation, for you are a a gracious and merciful God, knowing that none of us deserve your kindness, none of us deserve the riches of your love, but I'm so thankful that you have chosen uh, to bestow it upon us, us who don't deserve it. You're so kind, God, and so, so, so loving, and help us to uh, glorify you and honor honor you, for you are worthy of it. There is none like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.